Can you hear me? Okay. Just getting started here. It's so nice to see so many familiar faces. I see some people that uh, I haven't seen in a while due to COVID, some people in the community, uh, some alumni, my mother's here. It's very nice to see so many familiar faces joining us tonight for this very, very special, very powerful, maybe powerful is the wrong word, but tonight I bear you my heart. Tonight, I bear you my soul as I deliver my Rosh Hashanah address, my Rosh Hashanah sermon to you. First, I'd like to thank everyone who has donated to make sure that we can help those in need this Rosh Hashanah. We actually have 37 meals left to cover, and each meal it's just $25. You can go to jewishndg.com slash donate. And that way, when you sit down at your own Rosh Hashanah dinner this Friday night, you can be rest assured that others are taken care of as well. I'd like to thank my colleague at Chabad NDG, Rabbi Yosh Berkowitz. This sermon tonight is really his brainchild. Before I begin tonight, I'd like to ask you for a small favor. I'd like to ask you to turn off your distractions. It may be the other device that's not streaming this sermon. It may be the TV on mute or something that for some reason is distracting you. I'd like you to grab a glass of your favorite drink maybe some kind of munchie, and lends me your ear. And most of all, lends me your heart for the next 40 minutes. I think that we can all agree that the year 5780 Tufshin Pei, or in common parlance 2020, has been unlike any year that any of us can remember. I mean, besides for those few people living who survived both COVID-19 and the 1918 Spanish flu, of which there aren't very many, and they're probably too young to really remember anyway. This year has been unique. This year, we have no reference point for, nothing to compare it to, no way to process our understanding of what's happened to us. I've been getting a lot of existential questions from you all. A lot of them from myself, questions like, what are we doing here? What's life really all about. When you take away everything that we took for granted, 
What's it really all about? What really matters? During the month of Elul, the last month of the Jewish calendar, before Rosh Hashanah, typically you're, you're supposed to reflect. You're supposed to think about how the year went, what you can do better, what you did really well. It's how we prepare for a new level of activity, a new level of enlightenment in the coming year. But I want to be honest with you. I have no idea how this year went. I think a lot of you know that personally I got really sick, actually twice. I was quarantined with my family for endless weeks. I couldn't do things that I normally do. I couldn't work. I'll tell you the truth. I just felt lost. I don't know if there's another word that I can use for it. Just felt lost. All of this to say is, I don't have a president, and I don't think we have a president for this coming Rosh Hashanah. All of the normal rules and conventions are out the window. Whether we like it or not, the services and the traditions are going to look different this year. With all the health protocols, the outdoor synagogues, the chauffeur in the park. And so I feel that the sermon that I have to deliver to you this year has to be different. It has to be very different, extremely different. I'm going to say some things that for me, are really unprecedented because I don't know how else to address what I've been going through. I don't know how else to address what we've all been going through, but I'm going to try my best. But one thing, I think one thing that I'm not going to change is I'm still going to try to make you laugh. And I'm still going to try to make you smile through all the tears. Because after everything is said and done, joy is one thing that we have to keep. And when I think about my sermons, Rosh Hashanah, throughout the years, they all have one thing in common. And I mean literally. Every single sermon I've ever given on a Rosh Hashanah has one thing in common. And the common word is you. You. They're all about you. Now, truthfully, that's a good thing. I mean, after all, I think they'd be pretty boring if they were all about me. And if you go to any marketing or communications course right now, the first rule they're going to tell you is to abuse the word you. According to them, writing something should be something like this. Dear you. You, 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 signs, me, P.S., you. And that makes sense. I think it's actually the most sensible advice you can get. And yet this year, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to talk about you. I'm not going to talk about you. I'm going to talk about us. All of us. Let me explain what I mean. I think that we live in a very individualistic society, Western society. And to a great extent, you can find the roots of that individualism in our own tradition and in our own way of life in the Torah. In the ancient world, the lives, the the narratives of individual people, they never mattered very much. It was the leader that that mattered the king, uh, the queen, and everybody's purpose was to serve what they represented. If the king or queen sentenced you to death, then that was it. There was no trial. There was no jury. You had no rights in the face of the monarchy. And the reason why the king and queen had this power 
is because the monarch represented, at least they represented ideally the interests of everyone. And that was paramount, the collective. If you didn't fit in the hive, if you didn't fit in the bubble, then out you went. Books, records were written about the lives and the intrigues of those in power, not about the life of the simple laborer. And even today, the truth is we know very little about the common person thousands of years ago. There were many common people, but we don't know very much about them. We know about the monarchs. We know about the great people, but not about the commoner. And so progress was made. The American Constitution enshrining the rights of the individual against the potential tyranny of the collective. The culmination, the culmination perhaps of of centuries of slow progress towards the individual being paramount. With that, with that there came even more progress. Individualism laid the groundwork for the upcoming industrial revolution, a new technologies in the past century. It's unlocked the power of innovation coming from literally anywhere. You know who invented the TV? The original cathode ray tube predecessor to the screen that you're watching me on right now. His name was Philo Farnsworth. He was a poor Mormon farmer from Utah and Idaho. He was inspired by the lines of his father's plowed field to design the world's first video camera and monitor that had absolutely no moving parts. Instead, it displayed electrons line by line by line, basically the design of every TV until LCD flat screens. He started working on his invention as a high school student. And from a tiny town in the middle of Nowhereville, United States. And even when his father died and he had to support his family, he didn't give up. He went on to invent a plethora of devices. He actually holds to date, he holds to at all 300 patents. And that is the power of focusing on the individual. You never know which poor farm boy is going to be the one who changes everything, who changes everyone forever. And I think that brings us till today. In the Western world, where we're being told not to think about ourselves anymore, the most individualistic societies have been struggling to contain COVID-19, while the most collectivist societies are finding more success. There are demonstrations against using masks. Even here in Montreal, there's these demonstrations. And what's going on south of the border in the U.S.? Well, I think that I have a feeling that we're going to have trouble visiting our relatives for a very long while, unfortunately. Sorry, Mom. There's no question that COVID has changed everything. But perhaps, perhaps more profoundly than we realize. What did we as a society look up to until March of last year. People with money, cars, houses, vacations, lifestyle, bloggers, influencers, celebrities, people to inspire us to feel jealous, to feel really, really jealous. And then it all stopped. It's unbelievable. Nobody cared about it anymore. Nobody wanted to hear from celebrities quarantining in their mansions. 
Nobody wanted to see what famous, successful, or wealthy people were doing with their lives anymore. Instead, everybody realized how much they needed Joe. Joe. Who's Joe? I'll tell you who Joe is. It's Joe Schmo, of course. Joe is that guy who stocks the shelves at the grocery store around the corner from you. He has two kids from his first marriage, which didn't go so well. His kids are grown up now. He's living with a disabled partner who barely gets a welfare check. And Joe's skills from college are outdated. So he stocks the shelves at the grocery store to make ends meet. Joe never heard of Facebook. He never heard of Twitter. He never heard of Instagram. And you never noticed Joe. I never noticed Joe. We just didn't. We didn't notice him until one day Joe didn't show up to work. Why? Because Joe's 62 and he's scared of catching the virus and having to go to the hospital, leaving his disabled partner to fend for herself. And we couldn't find our supersized package of toilet paper because there was nobody to take them from the stock room in time. You bet we noticed Joe. We noticed him when he wasn't there to serve us for once. And we realized that Joe is actually a human being and that we can't, and I'm sorry to be crude, wipe our behinds without him. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Aliza Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yisrael Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. COVID, COVID shattered the illusion that individual power, individual wealth means anything at all. We think that we are islands and that everything will always be available to us. And we're safe with that. But we know now something different. We're not. We're not safe on our individual islands. We're not safe anymore. We need each other. Look around your room right now. Pick up any object, any object at all. And I'm willing to bet that it wasn't just you or someone who lives with you getting that object from the earth or wherever it came from into your possession. How many people were involved in getting that object to you. 10, 50, 100, 1,000? I don't think we have an idea of how many people were literally involved in getting that item to us. During my COVID quarantine, I found myself having a lot more time to read than I've had in a while. And I picked up a bunch of new favorite authors. One of them is Viktor Frankl, the famous Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist, the Holocaust survivor, the founder of logotherapy. I'm going to be talking a lot about him in my other sermons over the course of the holiday. And I think that much of what he says is crucial to what we are going through during these times. Another author I got into, I would say for fun, was this New York Times bestselling author named A.J. Jacobs. 
I started with one of his books. It was called The Year of Living Biblically. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. And I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. If you haven't read it, I, I, it's, it's really great. And it's, it's, it's comedy. It's humor. And I ended up reading his other books, too. And one of his more recent books is called Thanks a Thousand. And it really inspired me. The idea behind the book was deceptively simple. So this A.J. Jacobs decided to thank every single person involved in producing his morning cup of coffee. The resulting journey took him across the globe and, as he says, it transformed his life. He discovered that his coffee and every other item in our lives would not be possible without hundreds of people that we usually take for granted. Farmers, chemists, artists, presidents, truckers, mechanics, biologists, miners, smugglers, goat herds. He also gleaned wisdom from the vivid characters all across the globe, including uh, the Minnesota miners who extract the iron that makes the steel used in the coffee roasters, the Madison Avenue marketers who captured his wandering attention for a moment, and the farmers in Colombia. And what he says is by thanking those people face to face, he found some much needed brightness in his life. And I'm sure he added some to all of the other people's lives too. The book really got me thinking that for some reason, we've become so disconnected with the source of our food, with the source of everything. Things that we consume, things that we use, we've become so disconnected to the point that we think, quote unquote, apples grow in aisle two. Now the blessing, the blessing that we make on the food before we eat, the bracha, is supposed to ground us. It's supposed to connect us to the source of the food that we eat. Are we doing that in our lives? Just think about it a second. Are we actually doing that? Even people who are making those blessings, are they absent-minded recitations? Are we actually doing that? Maybe we're taking so much for granted, thinking that it's just there and it's always going to be there. Thinking that the people who make it happen are always going to be there. On that note, a few days ago, someone shows me this peculiar video on the internet. It's from this Dutch broadcaster. So they send an interviewer to the Ivory Coast in Africa, where much of the world's cacao beans are grown, to talk to these cocoa, to these cacao farmers. And it's unbelievable. I, if you remind me, I'll send you a link to this video because you have to see this. To his shock, they had no idea what they called the white people, what the white people called it, why they needed the cocoa beans. Do you understand? These people who are working for ends meet somewhere at the, on the Ivory Coast have no idea why people want these cacao beans. They call the white people. They had never seen or heard of chocolate. They've never even tasted chocolate. And one of those laborers said that his parents told him that the, the cacao beans are used to make wine. I mean, there's legends. Can you imagine the Ivory Coast is full of legends of what the white people do with the cacao beans? So the interviewer takes out some chocolate bars to share with the other men. And the looks on their faces, they say, this is what the cacao beans are used for? Wow, this is sweet. One of them said, this must be why the white people are so healthy. And while I was watching this video, not sure if I was supposed to, I don't know, laugh or cry. 
I saw the actual cacao bean and I realized that while they had never seen chocolate, I wouldn't know a cocoa bean if it fell off a tree and hit me in the head. I saw how they harvested them, how they opened them, how they fermented them. I didn't realize it's like this big thing and it's got these seeds inside. This is all news to me. So it got me thinking, was there any difference between me and them? They don't know where their beans are going and we have no idea where our chocolate, our chocolate that we love so much, where our chocolate is coming from. I think we know, maybe we read it in a textbook, but do we really know? We don't know what the lives of all the people who work for us are like. All those people, the Joes, the people who are stocking the shelves, we don't know what they go through. And we don't appreciate them until one day they don't show up. And I think that the same is true for all the things that we took for granted before COVID. Travel, fine dining, movie theaters, just seeing people, just me right now on the screen looking at all of you who have your videos on. It's an unbelievable privilege that we never thought two hoots about before. I had a lot of time to, to sit and think over the time that I had COVID. I had a lot of time to, to wonder what's it all about to start appreciating the things that maybe I never appreciated. A Chabad rabbi that I know who lives in Oregon, where there's terrible wildfires, may they all be okay, posted this message the other day. He said, thanks for the reminder that we need to be thankful for the air we breathe. I think that sums it all up. Now, I'm sure that by this point, many of you are realizing that I'm touching on some of the most contemporary political themes of the past decade. Many have which culminated in storms of upheaval, in storms of unrest, and even violence in our very days. And unlike many of the loudest voices we hear in the news, I don't think, you may disagree with me, but I don't think it's a sin to have some sort of privilege. It's a natural product of a very individualistic society. This is the society, the society we've created. We are a product of that. That's the reality. And a natural result of the things that our society does well to improve the lives of, of almost everybody Technology, industrial innovation, this is the reality. There's going to be some privilege. I'm not saying I'm proud of it, but it's a reality. I just want to say the thing. I want to be real. I want to be authentic. I want to not live in lava land. Some of us are going to win big. And some of us are going to win bigger. And unfortunately, some of us not so much. And when it comes to the individual game of wealth, that's the reality. That's okay. I think as long as the game is fair. It's a big if, I know. It's a big if. Something for you to think about. I mean, just as a side note, according to Jewish tradition, all of your potential earning power for the year is set on Rosh Hashanah and sealed on Yom Kippur. You can't earn a cent more than was allotted to you on Rosh Hashanah itself. So... Maybe that's something to think about during your prayers. Anyway, I digress. You know what? Actually, no, I don't digress. I think we should talk about this a second. Yeah, I do. I think we should talk about this. We need to stop thinking 
that each of us, mostly working somewhere in the middle class, chasm at the, at the center of, of the great wealth pyramid, is in it for ourselves. It's enough of, this, of the scarcity mindset, the fear-mongering. It's enough thinking that we need to absorb every benefit we can or else we're going to starve to death. Every single one of you, the us, the we, I'm talking to you. Yes, you. What do you do every day? What do you do every day? What do you do every day that's for you? And what do you do every day that's for everybody? Some of us in our work are balanced more towards ourselves. And some of us are balanced more towards everybody. And that's natural. That's normal. That's the way the world is. There's a balance in this world. I'm not going to go Kabbalistic on you right now. But no matter what your answer to my question was, tonight, I'm asking you to do more. I'm asking you to do more for everybody. I'm asking you to push the boundaries, push yourself, please. If COVID was a wake-up call for anything, it's how much we need you. We all need you to be better. Being your best self isn't something that you just do to attain self-actualization. You do it to achieve the next step of Maslow's pyramid of needs, self-transcendence. One version of self-transcendence is when you realize that you, being your best, isn't even about you anymore. It's because we, every single one of us, needs you. We need you to love more. We need you to stand up to tyranny. We need you to do another mitzvah. We need you to save the world. And that's why we say together on Rosh Hashanah, Asham knew, but God knew. You know the banging of the chest. It's not because we say new, new. You know, in Yiddish, new means all of us in the holy tongue. We are all responsible. We all need to change together. Every single one of us can do it. You can make your families better. You can make your workplace better. You can make your communities better. Your society is better. And you have no idea what the effect of that will be. Maimonides says, view the world as an evenly balanced scale so that it's your deed which will tip the scales to the side of redemption. Those are the words of Maimonides. All it takes is some study, a little meditation, to figure out what better even means, and then some determination to put it into place, to put it into practice. And so, when you're praying for your own livelihood, when you're praying for your health, health most of all, we all need health, this Rosh Hashanah, I have some advice. You know, I'm a rabbi, got some advice for how to speak to the big guy. He who shall, who shall not be named, the one in charge. Don't make it all about you. Instead, Make it about what you're going to do with your wealth for others. What you're going to do with your wealth for God. What are you going to do with your better health? Don't ask for better health. Say, dear God, with my better health, this is what I'm going to do with my time in this world. Think about it for a moment. 
we still have some time before Rosh Hashanah begins. We have some time to think about it. With your better health, what are you going to do with your time in this world? These are the things I've been thinking about. And if you're not sure what to do to make things better, join another class, a Torah class. The Torah has a lot to say about the vision for a better world, about the vision for a better future. It's the original source of the whole idea of a better collective future for mankind. You know that on the outside of the UN building in New York, there's a, a big quote. It's a quote from the book of Isaiah. It says, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We need, we need to use every ounce of privilege that we have to make the world better. The privilege is going to exist, and it's our job to use it to better the world. If you need some more inspiration, I'm going to tell you two stories about people who used the privilege and the talents that they had to make some small gestures, some small changes that led to much greater ones. And after I'm done with those stories, I'll finish my talk for this evening. The first story is about a man named Miguel Niggerdorf. He was a famous chess grandmaster. He died about, I think about 18 years ago. And he beat every one of the world's chess champions at one time or another. He was most famous for blindfolded chess, in which the player competes with his opponents without looking at the board. The player needs to maintain a mental model of the chessboard at all times. Some exceptional players can play several games of blindfolded chess at one time, three, four, or five, up to 10 games of blindfolded chess at one time. Several grandmasters have been, able, have been able to play up to 25 games without looking at the board simultaneously against different opponents. In 1947, this Najdorf set a world record by playing blindfolded chess against 45 opponents simultaneously. He won almost every single game it took him 24 hours. What did he do? Why did he do it? Why did he do it? He was after something much larger than just himself. His real name was Mendel Najdorf. He was born in Poland and he was a Jew. In 1939, he was invited to play in the chess Olympics in Argentina. He went, and a week later, while he was playing in a tournament, World War II broke out, and he couldn't get back to Nazi-occupied Poland. And he remained in Argentina where he was unable, because of news blackouts, to get any word of his family. He had no idea what had come of them. And after the war between the years of 1945 and 1947, he searched for them ceaselessly. But he never got anywhere. He couldn't find a trace of them. And finally, he decided that he would find a way to send an unmistakable signal to his missing family. If I do something, he thought, that will make headlines all over the world, because that's the only way that if any of them are still alive, they will know that it's me and they will know that I'm still alive. This was his thought process. So he trained himself to play more games of blindfolded chess than anyone because that's what he knew. And he carried out this incredible feat, not for money, 
not for fame, but because he was so deeply motivated by his love for his family. Because he was so deeply motivated by his love for his family, he was made bigger by answering the call of love that was greater than himself. And he broke the world record, not because he was focused on himself, but because he was focused on the love that went beyond himself. Love that went beyond himself. I have one last story for you tonight. The story of Dr. Ludwig Gutmann. Here's another man who was made great by applying his energy to something larger than himself. Gutmann is a Jew. He's living in Germany in the 1930s. And he was regarded as one of the country's premier brain surgeons. In 1938, on Kristallnacht, Jews were beaten, murdered. They had their homes or businesses burned to the ground. Gutman, who was then the medical director of the hospital in Breslau, risked his life by defying orders and instructing his staff to admit anyone who was arriving that night. No questions asked. The next day, the Gestapo came to the hospital wanting to know why there were so many admissions overnight. Gutmann took the Gestapo around to all the new patients, inventing bogus diagnosis. 60 of the 64 admissions from the previous night were saved from concentration camps. Gutman was expecting to be hauled off himself for his actions, but incredibly, he was not. And, and soon afterwards, he fled to England, and he was asked by the British government to run a spinal injuries unit at Stoke Mandeville Hospital. And there, at the hospital, he single-handedly revolutionized the way that paralyzed servicemen were cared for. At that time, it was assumed that paraplegics could never live any kind of normal life. The best that could be done for them was to keep them sedated on high doses of drugs and left hospitalized and bedridden until they died. Gutman changed all of that. He believed that they each had a life ahead of them, not just behind them, with faith, with determination. They could leave their beds. They could go out into the world. They can have jobs. They can marry. They could find happiness, dignity of achievement. It was an immense struggle for him as well as for them. He reduced their painkillers and he brought in a trainer to make them exercise. He coaxed them out of their beds into the wheelchairs to play games, competing with hospital staff, who he also put in wheelchairs. Gutman was opposed by everyone, the nurses, his fellow doctors, the hospital administrators. What are you doing? You're attempting the impossible. But with absolute determination, he kept going. And as a Jew, he knew he was commanded to choose life. He was commanded to fight for life. And in the midst of an economic crisis, he decided that his rehab program required a swimming pool. And when his request was refused, he went to London, knocked on Winston Churchill's door, and was allowed in. And that year, his patients had a swimming pool. Within a year, he had reversed the mortality rate. Before his innovations, 80% of, of the veterans in the war didn't survive. After he got his rehabilitation program going, 80% did. He went from 80% not living to 80% living. He had every paraplegic veteran in Britain waiting for a space in his ward. 
And Gutman understood that in his struggle, sport had a transformative power. He saw sport as a way to regain fitness, to boost self-esteem, and above all, above all, to restore personal dignity. He extended the internal games within the hospital to a national competition. And in 1948, on the day the Olympics opened in London, Gutman organized the first Olympic Games for the Paralyzed, the Paralympics. And slowly it grew until 1960. Gutman's vision of a true Paralympic Games was realized 400 wheelchair athletes from 23 countries paraded through Rome's Olympic Stadium, competing in the same sports as the able-bodied athletes. And in 2016, Paralympics, the Paralympics had more than 4,000 athletes from 147 countries. Government was knighted in 1966. And I believe that by living for something larger than himself, he helped to transform the life of so many others. You don't risk your life fighting the Gestapo or knock on Churchill's door to demand the funds for a swimming pool if you're not living for something greater than yourself. And only when we answer the call, the call of a cause greater than ourselves, do we become great. All of us have a desire, a hunger, to be greater than we are. But we don't know how to do it. So we get better gadgets and we distract ourselves. A new car, a bigger home. But these possessions, they don't enlarge our lives. They're only there to distract us. There's only one thing that can make our lives bigger, that can truly make our lives bigger. And that is answering the call of a cause that's greater than ourselves, a cause of the collective, leaving the individual. Throughout the high holidays, when we pray that God may remember us for life, we express much more than the will to live. We ask God to help us limancha elokim chayim. We ask God to help us live. It's not just the will to live, to help us live. For your sake, God, we ask for a life that will be dedicated to the highest, worthiest of causes. During these holiest days of the year, we bring our most intimate prayers, our secrets to God, our material needs, health, 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 happiness, our concerns over our children, our fears for the future. They're all legitimate. They're all so important. God, God is a loving parent who gives and forgives. But this year, I think we have to go beyond even these needs. This year, genuine greatness, genuine selflessness is demanded of us. Our prayers must not only be for ourselves, but for God for the Torah, for the collective. We cannot see ourselves as an individual. The Rebbe said, it's like somebody who buys a ticket on a boat. And then he sits down in his seat and he says, this is my seat. And he takes a drill and he drills into the bottom of the boat and he says, it's my seat, I bought the ticket. 
We are in this together. We're in this together. And there's a reason why we are living in this time and in this place. I don't know. None of us know. There's a reason why we have to live through this pandemic. And if we are going to be the same people coming out of this, God be willing very soon coming out of this. If we're going to be the same people that we went in, then we learn nothing. We need to learn from this and decide this Rosh Hashanah, what kind of person we are going to be coming out. Take a time, take, meditate, focus, decide. Who am I going to be on the other side? Am I going to be an individualist or am I going to be part of the collective? That's the great question. And I bless each and every one of you. May our prayers this Rosh Hashanah storm the heavens. May they storm the heavens collectively like they haven't stormed the heavens before. May they storm the heavens as one person with one heart, as one soul united. And may God receive the message loud and clear, loud and clear. We are done. We are finished. We are done with this pandemic, it's over. We are done. We've learned what we need to learn. We are changed. And may God grant us the knowledge and the ability to grow and become greater and to take this new lease on life that we have as a result of this terrible, terrible time and be able to use it to make this world a beautiful world, a dwelling place for God and usher in an era of true peace and of true unity. I wish you all a Shana Tova, a happy and healthy new year and all of the greatest blessings and the best blessings to each and every one of you. And thank you for being here tonight. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there. In this course, I talk about the Kabbalistic secrets to relationships, to wealth, to happiness, and balance. This special offer has been dedicated in loving memory of Ellie Dorfman. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you enjoy the course. Now on to today's episode.